1: Hello and welcome. I'm Pat Rulo, the voice for patient safety, where each week we delve into little-known healthcare and hospital hazards, as well as other fringe topics that affect your health and well-being. I'm so happy you've taken the time to join me, and today I have lots to share with you. So let's dig right in, shall we? I mentioned last week that I am in the throes of compiling and publishing an important anthology of patient safety voices due to come out late spring or early summer. And the title of the book is Highway to Heart, Humor, and Honesty in Healthcare. And today, I'm going to share part of an interview I had last week with one of the contributors. Her story revolves around inappropriate medication prescribing and polypharmacy in older persons. Now polypharmacy, no, not poly, not the cute gal in the drugstore, but rather the prefix poly, p-o-l-y, the word means many. So the definition of polypharmacy is this, the simultaneous use of multiple drugs to treat a single ailment or condition, or the simultaneous use of multiple drugs by a single patient, for one or more conditions. Now, polypharmacy is associated with increased risk of falls, adverse drug events, hospital admissions, and, yes, death. One approach to handling unnecessary medication use and polypharmacy has been coined de-prescribing. Deprescribing is the process of tapering, stopping, discontinuing, or withdrawing drugs, your medications, with the goal of managing polypharmacy and improving outcomes. Nearly one half of older adults take five or more medications, and as many as one in five of these prescriptions is potentially inappropriate. Older adults prescribed more medications are more likely to be hospitalized for an adverse drug reaction. Also, adverse drug reactions account for more morbidity and mortality than most chronic diseases, with death rates higher than many common cancers. It's been told that about 21% of adults with intellectual disability are also exposed to polypharmacy, so it is seriously a problem, and it's a challenge because the healthcare system is geared towards starting medications, not reducing or stopping them. Although any medication may offer potential benefits, each also has potential for harm. And when combined, the risk of interactions with other medications or conditions, or cumulative harms, can outweigh the benefits. Now, one component of good prescribing is deprescribing, which again is defined as adjusting medications down to the minimum effective dosage or stopping them when a patient's health status changes in a way that medication burden or potential for harm outweighs the benefit of the medication. And today's guest has quite a story about how medication reconciliation killed her mother. Medication reconciliation is the process of creating the most accurate list possible of all medications a patient is taking, including the drug name, dosage, frequency, and the route, and then comparing that list against the physician's admission, transfer, and or discharge orders with the goal of providing correct medications to the patient at all transition points within the hospital, and I should add, within the person's entire health care journey. So, here's a bit of my conversation with one of the upcoming contributors to the book, Highway to Heart, Humor and Honesty in Healthcare. Today's guest is an activist with a passion for patient and victim advocacy. She is Mary Brennan Taylor, Following the death of her mother, Alice Brennan, from medical error, Mary embarked on a 10 year campaign to bring the patient voice into the schools of medicine, nursing, pharmacy, and physical therapy. A University of Buffalo Department of Family Medicine adjunct research instructor, Mary volunteers her time as a monthly lecturer in the medical school and serves as a founding member of Team Alice, a multidisciplinary team focusing on deprescribing and medication safety for geriatric patients. Mary is the vice president of programs for the YWCA of the Niagara Frontier and Community, and also volunteers her time as a patient and family engagement advisor for Eastern Niagara Hospital. Much of her story mirrors my mom's healthcare journey, and so it is with great understanding, empathy, pride, and pleasure that I welcome you to the show, Mary. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Pat. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is definitely my, my pleasure. I just want to dig right in with you, Mary, because you just got quite a story. You came into patient advocacy quite by accident. So share briefly, if you would, your mom's story.
2: Yes, indeed. It it certainly was by accident and it's certainly not a club one wants to belong to. But when my mother encountered her really tragic experience with the healthcare system and the cascade of medical errors that plagued her case, I really was looking for some way to make sure that what happened to mom did not happen to other seniors in particular. So my mother, Alice Brennan, was a very active, very engaging 88-year-old woman who um, was on the steering committee for her high school's 70th high school reunion and she just had the most active social schedule you can possibly imagine. She, um, in the summer of 2009, was experiencing some neck and back pain and went to a community emergency department for for treatment. And be careful what you ask for. She went in, said, please give me something for this. And unfortunately for her, they did. And it was a medication that was very dangerous for someone of her age. So she was prescribed the cholinergic muscle relaxant flexorol for um, the treatment of this neck and back pain, which actually was just you know, arthritis. She left the emergency department, went to her local pharmacy, had the medication, the prescription filled, went home. But by that point, she had been moving around. She took a shower. She was a little bit more limber and the pain was really subsiding. So she never took the medication. So we then went a few days later to her neurologist. She'd had a um a a TIA, a trans ischemic attacks, a mini stroke several years prior. So she was going every couple six months just for checkups and we took her list of medications with us to the neurologist and that she was taking at home and she was only on a few actually. She was on a um a medication for hypertension, she was on a blood thinner, and she had she took eye drops. So in addition to those things, we also had on this list of medications this anticholinergic flexural on the list and the neurologist looked at that list and looked at my mother and me and said, oh dear God, who would give an 88-year-old woman flexural? Well, I had no idea. I have no medical background and I asked him to explain why that would be a problem. So he gave me a crash course in the beers criteria and medications that are potentially very dangerous for seniors and said, please go home, dispose of the medication, you know, safely, properly, but do not take this, Mrs. Brennan. Do not take this medication. Okay. That's all I needed to say. We didn't have any idea that medication reconciliation would rear its ugly head. So a few days later, she ended up having some issue with her knee and we went to her primary care physician and he said, Alice, I think it's gout, but I'm not sure. I'm going to refer you to an orthopedic specialist, and they can determine it. So off we went to the orthopedic specialist. The orthopedic specialist said, you know, I think your primary care physician may be right, but we won't know unless we, you know, do some tests, and I'm going to admit you to a local hospital. So was that necessary? Maybe not in terms of over-treatment, but she was admitted, but it happened to be the same hospital associated with the emergency department. So when she went in, she was prescribed the flexural unbeknownst to us. So we didn't go through any kind of medicine checklist when she was admitted. And she, she was being given this flexural three times a day, unbeknownst to us. And then she was transferred to a rehab facility so you have a transition of care issue here and she went to the rehab facility really was approaching it with gusto when she first got there but then slowly but surely things started to really deteriorate into the point where she ended up having just violent hallucinations and she became very lethargic she had a depressed appetite nauseated unsteady gait all the things that would be associated with taking this medication at her age. So when I asked the charge nurse at the rehab facility, my God, what happened to my mother? And she said, I really don't know. And she, I said, could we see, did she, was she given something inappropriately that would cause this? And we looked at her medication list and there, lo and behold, was Flexeril on the list. So mom went from being a vital, independent 88-year-old who lived in her own home and drove her own vehicle to someone who was in the throes for the rest of her life, which was a very short window at this point, for the next few weeks uh, until she died, she was in the throes of not only the hallucinations and the depressed appetite, but that she also acquired three life-threatening healthcare-acquired infections. She had C. difficile, she had MRSA, and she had VRE. So that train wreck of an experience is what propelled me into the patient safety movement.
1: Oh, I am sitting here with my mouth open, Mary. Was that flexural on her chart? Is that why they thought it was safe? And why why did they yes. come
2: up, though? So yep, was- that's exactly what happened. So she was admitted to the hospital. They looked at this medication reconciliation, you know, list of meds and thought, oh, she was given, you know, flexural. Apparently, you must have to take it for the rest of your life. It was just, you know, medication reconciliation when it works, it's great. But, you know, when it doesn't, when it's just used like an inventory, that if one time you're given one medicine for that particular circumstance, it doesn't mean you should be given it for the rest of your life, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there were so many things, Pat, so many things, that all of the woulda, coulda, shouldas, if she had not been hospitalized, maybe this wouldn't have happened. If she hadn't gone to the emergency department and have an ER doc who really had no idea what medications were safe for senior citizens, maybe you know this wouldn't have happened. So there were so many things. And what happened when she went from the hospital to the rehab facility, they sent in her discharge papers that they were to continue this medication. So she was not only given it three times a day when she was in the hospital, That continued into the rehab facility until I got to the rehab facility this one morning. And I would go like twice a day, but this one morning, and she was having these violent hallucinations. So here's somebody who had never had any kind of cognitive impairment, who had never had any hallucinations. This was not, you know, she was not delirious. And all of a sudden, here she is. And it never, ever improved.
1: So just that lingering medication, there's got to be a way that if a, a medication for a particular patient is deemed inappropriate, that that needs to be scoured and scrubbed off of every possible chart or electronic medical record.
2: Indeed. Yes, indeed. We were like babes in the woods here. You know, we patient safety advocacy, I, I had no idea what that was mm-hmm. at that time. When that neurologist told us she should never take this, I guess I just assumed that 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 information would have been shared, that that information would have been shared with her primary, that that information would have been shared with the hospital, but the neurologist was not part of the same hospital Mm -hmm, system. mm -hmm. So there were just so many complexities, so many issues. And even though this happened in 2009, the same things continue to happen today. Absolutely, yeah. I wouldn't want your listeners to think, oh, well, that was 10 years ago. It's not, you know, it doesn't happen today. Well, yes, indeed, it does. I would make sure if if I'm, you know, listening to your show, my goodness, that means when I go to the hospital, I should make sure I see what they're giving me. I should make sure I ask what's in that little white cup that they come around, you know, and say, here are your pills, Mrs. Brennan. Make sure the, the nurse who's delivering it can tell you exactly what those medications are. And if there are more pills in the cup that you take at home, ask those questions. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Or if they look different. I impressed that on my mom so well that every time somebody came into her room, whether it was rehab or whatever, she would say, what are you giving me? And to the point that they got annoyed with her and said, why do you keep asking
2: me that? Well, because maybe, you know, you're giving me something that you <laughs> know, medication that should be for the person in the next bed, Thank which you. happens all the time. <laughs> so Anyway, that's so appreciate the opportunity to just be able to share her story as a i guess a cautionary tale mm-hmm. absolutely and you're doing this you're bringing the patient voice into
1: the schools of medicine nursing pharmacy and mm-hmm. physical therapy what is the response to your message what are you
2: hearing back actually i i take great part in in how things are going i mean at first it started with the nursing school just working with nurses and then just with physicians and but now we're doing it as an interdisciplinary team so you'll have nurses, physicians, physical therapists, pharmacists all in the same room, you know, because that's really what a hospital setting is like. You're not just with doctors or just with nurses. You're with a whole team. And so that really has, I think, has really, it gives me great hope. I consider these medical students to be change agents. And that's really why I chose that route. I was never interested in Lawsuits or suing the facilities for the, for, for frankly, for killing my mother because that wouldn't have done anything. That would have just been, you know, the hospital attorneys dealing with malpractice attorneys. And that doesn't change anything because it's just insurance companies paying out. You know, I mean, it, that, that was not something I was interested in, but working with people who are emerging medical professionals who may think before they prescribe, who may really try to curb their tendency toward ageism, which I think was very much in play in my mother's case.
1: Very, very interesting. So let's just talk briefly from a patient's family member's side. From your experience and from from what you went through and what you're (laughs) taking part in now, do you find that the patient's family members are considered a valued part of the conversation with providers? What's that relationship feel like between provider and family member?
2: Well, I think it really... Even depends on the facility, you know, where you go. I I had my own healthcare issue this past summer and the facility where I went was very focused on patient and family engagement and very, you know, welcoming in terms of, you know, my husband's role and listened to me and, and honored my questions. And then there are other facilities. I was with a friend just this past week whose son had been in an accident and it couldn't have been farther from a patient and family engagement priority. It was very much hierarchical. It was very much go over and sit there and we'll call you when we're ready kind of attitude.
1: So what from that family member's side can be done to improve communication? Let's say that you find yourself, say, at the second facility and things are not patient-centric and you're a family member and you're, you're caring for somebody else. What could you do as that family member to help guide the improvement of and toward communication?
2: Well, I think people have to, I guess, expect respect and and collaboration. And you set that bar when you walk into that facility and say to yourself, I'm not going to tolerate anything other than that. I am going to expect that I'm going to be treated with dignity and I'm going to have my questions answered and I'm going to keep asking them like your mother with the, you know, the medication. I'm going to keep asking until I get the answers and I'm not going to allow, I mean, let's face it, you know, it, it can be very intimidating when you're in a position where you you really are almost powerless and you've got medical professional everywhere, and you're sitting, you know, on a gurney in a hospital gown, that is not a very empowering experience. And so you need to just really have, I guess, steely spine and say, I'm going to expect this type of behavior on the part of my healthcare team.
1: Absolutely. Easier said than done, but I think it's a good point to keep in the back of your mind, whether you are the patient or the family. Now, I was at the University of Buffalo Center for Successful Aging's website, and I read your account of your mom's story. And in part, I want to just read a little part. You said, Mom's story did not have to end like some Greek tragedy in the death of an innocent woman. It could have been a totally different outcome had the healthcare facilities in which she was treated been focused on a culture, committed to patient safety, and by that I mean everyone, from the CEO to the head of housekeeping, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, everyone to whom she entrusted her care. And by a culture of safety, I mean the establishment of safety as an organizational priority, teamwork, patient and family engagement, openness and transparency, accountability, non-punitive response to adverse events and errors, promotion of safety through education and training, there was no one individual responsible for my mother's death. Mom was a victim of a profound yet preventable system failure. And while reading your words, I saw the picture of your mom close to only six weeks after her initial neck pain, and I, I sat at my desk and I I, I I wept. I wept for her, for you, for me, for my mom, and the scores of others who have been at the sharp end of preventable healthcare system failures. So we are focused on this book on heart, humor, and honesty. Could any of those, those three, have helped to alter that system
2: failure and ultimately your mom's outcome? Yes, absolutely. I think let's take them, I guess, one point at a time. In terms of heart, that really, really is a, to me, an example of compassion and for humanizing, as is humor in terms of communication and and in terms of honesty, if the Healthcare facilities, both of them, both the hospital and the rehab facility had been honest in being able to acknowledge what was happening and be able to address it promptly. Had there been a non punitive approach, meaning as nurses may have seen things happening, if they had felt empowered to be able to say, Hey, there's something going on with Mrs. Brennan, or if pharmacists who were filling these scripts, and you can't tell me that pharmacists don't know the, you know, the beers criteria in a rehab facility that is dealing with senior citizens. So had there been honesty, had there been both heart in terms of compassion and not just assuming, gee, Mrs. Brennan is 88 years old. She had lived a good life and oh well, instead of treating her as a one size fits all octogenarian, had there been humor and, and, and my mother, was the funniest woman God ever created. She was just, you know, it's funny, Pat, when I talk to medical and nursing students, and they seem to look younger by the year as I go in, and I'll say, you know, Mom was sort of like a combination of Carol Burnett and Lucille Ball, and they look at me like, who? Um, <laughs> yeah, like, what? <laughs> and, but she was. She was just a laugh a minute. She that is just how she approached life. And it's it's funny you should use humor because she used to, you know, use the old adage, laughter is the best medicine. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, she laughed at herself. And she she found humor in really just tragic situations. So if there had been rather than a, you know, kind of cold and impersonal and institutional Type of approach, which I don't really think fosters great communication. Had there been people who were laughing with her, you know, had there been people who would, and and it would, of course it would have to be appropriate. Um, you're not, it's not, there's nothing funny about what happened to her or there's nothing funny about being sick, but you can inject humor between your healthcare team and your patient and it humanizes them both right
1: thank you for commenting on that i really was looking forward to your your perspective on that well you and i could talk for a very long time it feels like doesn't it <laughs> It sure does. I feel like I have a new friend. Uh, You do have a new friend. Oh, (laughs) we are friends. So, as we begin to wrap up, though, um, is there anything we missed that you wanted to talk about today?
2: I would just encourage your listeners, as you know, when they're patients and when their family members are patients, to not fear asking questions come to appointments, come to the hospital with a notebook, with questions, because it can be very intimidating and intense. And if you've got the questions down and you've thought about them, you can write down the answers. And then if physicians want people to be compliant, they have to understand what's going on. Just do not hesitate to ask questions and ask questions until you get an answer. Thank you. So where can folks go then to learn more about you and your work? Well, they can look at uh, the Team Alice website. So if you were to just Google www.teamalice, um, UB's website will come up. There's quite a bit of information on that. Um, they can learn more about deprescribing, the, uh, the initiative. We now have something called Team Alice um, and it's an interdisciplinary team working together to try to really improve medication safety for geriatric patients.
1: Excellent. So that's an easy website. Your mom's name, teamalice.com. All right, my new friend, um, any final words of advice for providers or any final words for patients or family members before we head out? I
2: just, again, would encourage people to focus on communication and really demand communication with their healthcare team. Folks, it's Mary Brennan Taylor and
1: the website is teamalice.com. Mary, thank you so much for sharing you and your mom's story today, and I know that just all the hard work that you are doing is going to make such a positive difference in somebody else's life. Thank
2: you. Thank you, and thank you for what you're doing, Pat.
0: Listen to Pat Rulo and Speak Up and Stay Alive Radio. Stay safe from little-known health care and hospital hazards. To learn more, go to speakupandstayalive.com. That's speakupandstayalive.com.
1: Quite a story, right? So please take this cautionary true story to heart. When a medication is deprescribed, which means you no longer should be taking it, that medication needs to be removed from all of your records so as not to appear sometime later as a suitable drug for you to take, or at least, if you're going to take it, without your questioning it. So if you or a loved one experiences new or unusual problems, such as cognitive impairment, falls, hallucinations, pain, anything out of the ordinary, ask if that particular adverse effect is caused by a medication. Now, There's something called legacy prescribing, which is when medications are initially prescribed for an intermediate duration, for a short period, but they're continued indefinitely. Here's some of the ones that are typical for legacy prescribing, and that would be proton pump inhibitors for stomach acid, and you know the names, like the little purple peel, Naxium, Prilosec, Prevacid. Another big one, antidepressants, such as Selexa, Lexapro, Luvox, Paxil, Prozac, Zoloft. Benzodiazepines, such as Valium, Xanax, Ativan, Versed. There needs to be a prescribing system to flag when the course of an intended treatment is complete, and thus far I think that that system is you, the patient. Ask, do I still need to take this? And if not, make sure it is erased from all of your charts, electronic medical records, and so on, so that it's not merely added to your medication cocktail without very pointed conversation with your doctor. Now, I am in no way suggesting that you take all of your pills and throw them in the garbage um, and stop taking them. I am not saying that, but I am saying question what you are taking. Ask if you still need to take it. And if not, make sure those do not appear on future lists. Today's conversation is actually quite the springboard for so many more episodes, and I'm sure I'll get to them in the future. But in the meantime, we are out of time. So do yourself some good this week. Head over to the website speakupandstayalive.com and get yourself or a friend or someone in the hospital or a nursing home a copy of both of my life-saving books, Speak Up and Stay Alive, Your Hospital Survival Guide. It's $20. And my newest book, Healthcare-Acquired Infections, The Troublemakers and How to Avoid Them. And that book is only $10. Just visit the shop page and you'll find some more goodies, my essential oil book, hand-washing cards, and so much more. That's all at speakupandstayalive.com, or call me to order 440-725-5462. That is 440-725-5462. And if your group or club, business or church, association is looking for a speaker, I am your person. Or heck, throw a patient safety party and invite your friends. I've been invited to speak at those before. It's a very intimate way to gather information and share stories, have snacks, and yeah, it's it's a good time. 440-725-5462 Okay, time to go, but I will see you next week. Same time, same place, but never the same information. Until then, I hope you have a healthy and a happy week. Free from our gal, Polypharmacy. I am Pat Rullo and I am the voice for informed choice and patient safety.
0: If you've missed part of today's show or just want to share the information with friends, you can listen to all of Pat's previous shows at SpeakUpAndStayAlive.com. Want even more information? Purchase a copy of Pat's book at SpeakUpAndStayAlive.com. Once again, it's SpeakUpAndStayAlive.com. Or you can call Pat at... 440 725 Until next week, remember, it's okay to ask others to wash their hands. You have to speak up and stay alive.
1: If you need a life-changing topic and speaker for your next event, call me 440-725-5462 or visit speakupandstayalive.com. Let me share what I know with your group. 440-725-5462 or visit speakupandstayalive.com. I know you've been a good I recently narrated and produced an audiobook for author Joni Dark Shepherd. The book is titled Rio, a love story, how my dog saved my life. Most of you know that I was a caretaker for my mom for nearly a decade and also have been rescued by 13 cats, so Joni's book resonated. Her boundless love and commitment to both her mother and sister as they battled cancer was raw, real, and revealing. As the darkness of these times descended upon her, she discovered and allowed the love of her dogs, especially Rio, to light up her life. Joni Dark Shepherd and the honest portrayal of her journey left me crying, smiling, and feeling happy. And isn't that what a good book is supposed to do? A compassionate and passionate read. Get yourself a copy today. Visit Amazon.com or the website website joanandrio.com. I guarantee you'll love the book, Rio, A Love Story, How My Dog Saved My Life. Visit joanandrio.com. Hi there, I'm Gina Murphy-Darling, the host of Mrs. Green's World, and I would really love for you to become a part of that world. We talk about things like the faceless villain of climate change, our compromised food supply, and about how to become a conscious consumer but it's not all bad news. We educate, we inspire, we engage. We always leave you with some small steps you can take to make a difference for this great planet of ours and help you live the healthy life you deserve. Please visit mrsgreensworld.com to learn more and become a part of our world.